0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio.
1: Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature.
0: Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hatcast. Follow the Cat in the Hatcast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hatcast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts.
1: The end. Ah, that's one way to wrap things up. It's never easy, is it? I'm talking to the writers in the audience now. It's never easy to know how to end things when you're writing a novel or a short story or a poem. It's a choice that must be made. The first line, well, everyone knows how to agonize over that one. And there's a a simple goal, a simple objective for first lines. You need to pull people in. If you can't get the first line right, you might not have any readers The last line, though, or the ending, the way the story ends, will be almost as important. Maybe more important. Do you want your readers to spend time with you, only to have them hate you? What do you want from your readers? I'm still speaking to authors now, but we can turn this around and think about this from the reader's perspective as well. How greedy are you, reader? You want it all, don't you? You want some kind of happiness at the end, a happy resolution? No, wait. You want it to be realistic. Or, no, wait, you want to learn something. Or, no, no, you hate learning things. You think it's the author hitting you over the head with a moral or a lesson. Everyone wants something different, but what is an author to do? They have to end things somehow. I heard an author say once that he knew the book was over when he didn't want to spend any more time with the characters. And I sat in the audience thinking, no wonder the ending of this book is so terrible. (laughs) Exhaustion is a terrible motivation. If you're tired by your own characters, what hope does the reader have? That was an unsuccessful book. Nevertheless, we're fortunate to have great works of literature. Endings are difficult, but writers have been pulling them off successfully for centuries. Does that mean stories end the same way? Is there some formula? Is there some magic trick for how to end a story? No. Readers want different things, but so do writers. They have an agenda. Nevertheless, some trends can be detected. Some patterns, some types. Things have changed over time. It's a fascinating subject for us here on the History of Literature. Sometimes authors have been extremely creative. And sometimes that's a good thing, and sometimes not. Luckily, we have the perfect guest to discuss endings. Mike, our old friend, the president of the Literature Supporters Club, is going to come by. Mike's a ruthless reader. He's also dedicated, passionate, caring, and ruthless. (laughs) I wonder if that comes from the club. I imagine that's what they do all day. Sit around, tearing apart bad endings, praising good ones. A lot of clamor. A lot of near riots. Somehow to become president of that thing, you have to... Be ready to defend your positions. Anyway, Mike's here. We had him in for a discussion of endings, and we roamed through Tolstoy and Joyce and Conrad and Iris Murdoch and Samuel Beckett and all kinds of other wonderful endings. Hey, speaking of wonderful, we've been getting a lot of wonderful emails and comments from listeners. So many, in fact, with so many great questions and ideas and thoughts we're thinking that we should include some in the show. Maybe we'll do a few at the end of an episode or maybe an entire episode dedicated to listener feedback. So this is your chance. This is your chance to have your voice heard. I know you're out there. I know you have ideas. This doesn't have to be a one-way street. You can send me an email of ideas for a future show or things you think we got wrong or ideas that you've had that nobody ever seems to discuss. You could send us your favorite books, whatever you want. How about your favorite ending? Listen to this episode, then tell us the one that we forgot. Send it our way. There are a couple of ways you can do this. You can contact us here at the show. You can send us an email at jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com. That's J-A-C-K-E, wilsonauthor at gmail.com. Or you can leave a comment on historyofliterature.com or jackwilson.com or on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofliterature. Now, one more way. This might be the best. I have a voicemail box. It's not my real phone. It's just set up for the show, thanks to Google. Yes, they're kind of a sponsor. They let me set this up for free. You can call this number. And don't worry, there's no scam here. I don't track it or anything. You will be as anonymous as you want. I'll only hear what you tell me and what you would like to share with your fellow listeners. So it'll let me hear your question or your comment. and We can all listen right here on the podcast. So come on, literature fans. I know you have things to say. That number is one 361 494 Five seven six six. That's one three six one four Wilson. It's basically a free number for those of you with unlimited calling, or at least I don't charge you anything. So call me up and let me know what's on your mind. While you're doing all this roaming around the internet, typing things into your phone, why not subscribe to the History of Literature podcast if you haven't already? and tell all your friends. We're trying not to be lonely. That's the goal, isn't it? The goal in in life? To care about one another, and not to be lonely. In any case, please do spread the good news. We truly appreciate it. Okay, enough of this meandering around. We've got endings to discuss. That means we need to head towards something, some destination. It's just like good fiction, isn't it? We can all float all we want in this lazy river, slowly drifting this way and that. No discernible progress. But then our ears start twitching when the noise. Low rumbling. Falls lie ahead in our future, our little raft. Our time in this beautiful serenity are about to give way to a headlong rush down the waterfalls over the side we go, flying pell-mell downward, 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 towards our future, toward our fate, until finally we hit the bottom, level out, and catch our breath literature as a waterfall. It feels that way sometimes. You turn the book's pages, you see that last page, you see the white space ahead, it's a plummeting. Strap yourselves in. We're headed to the end.
2: This is the end, beautiful friend. This is the end, my only friend, the end of our lives, the end
3: of everything. Okay, my guest today is Mike, the president of the Literature Supporters Club. Mike, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Jack. Mike, everyone talks about first lines, but people don't talk as often about endings. And I think there might be a couple of reasons for that. One might be uh that you need to uh, understand the context to appreciate a good last line or a good ending. When you read the ending divorced of context, it doesn't make as much sense. You don't always understand why it is such a good last line and you kind of have to earn your way there by reading. But I think the other reason why people don't always talk about endings is that they're afraid of spoiling an ending for people. And we should probably say right up front that there are going to be spoilers in this episode. There's no way around it. So if people are worried about a book they want to read and and they don't want to find out the ending, they should probably uh, skip this podcast.
4: And, you know, I had a little trouble also because I was thinking Anna Karenna, you know, for spoiler alert... Um, I I thought the novel ended with her suicide. <laughs> and, and like there was that this, was the last line. Yeah, and then there's this whole thing with Levin, the aristocrat Levin, <laughs> and I was like, what? And so I I actually I reread um that last night, and it 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 has a very effective, it's a very effective ending because it you, you almost don't want to end it with the suicide, and maybe that's that's a a case of a modern ending versus a 20th century ending
3: right and it it is oh. i think there's also a difference with novels and short stories where short stories the ending is uh very pregnant with meaning it's it's very significant no matter what you do Novels will often have kind of an ending. You know, they don't always wait until the very last line to to make their their point. Often they'll have the ending with a few pages to go will be the ending of the story. And then the author kind of coasts to the finish, almost like the narrator knows that you've spent a lot of time with him or her, and they kind of ease you out of the novel gently.
4: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I thought one thing we could do is we could kind of read... I, I had the idea of maybe reading some endings and seeing if you could guess what they were. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, let's let's get to that. Let's save that for a minute because I want to talk first about why, what we look for in endings, and and kind of the development of the modern ending, and uh, how important it is to understanding what the author is up to. I think a novel is is another difference between the novels and short stories is that novels might be very good even if the ending falls flat and the author might set out to uh, construct their novel and and have a real uh, motivation for writing the novel that has nothing to do with the ending and maybe they don't know how to end it and they tack on an ending but the novel can still be good short stories it seems like if the if the short story doesn't have a good ending and if the author doesn't have a good idea of how the story is going to end the story doesn't really come off at all
4: yeah it makes you very angry yeah when a short story ends in a way that you feel robbed whereas with a novel if the ending i was thinking that with a novel the ending is like a college essay just don't make it bad. Right. Yeah. It's dif- it's difficult to write a great college essay, but there's this vast middle, it's okay range. Mm-hmm. And so when you read an ending of a novel and you think, eh, okay, it's over. There's a much higher bar with a short story.
3: Right. So there are a couple of books that have helped me to understand endings and, and how they work in fiction. One of them is David Lodge's Art of Fiction which has a chapter on endings. And the point that he made that I thought was really interesting was he observed that Victorian authors... Often had a hard time with endings because their readers demanded happy ones, and they had spent time with them through the mm-hmm. serialization process. That that they knew they had this big readership; they were getting feedback from readers, and so they would end things. and The characters were so beloved at that point, and and uh, the the public had such a demand that the authors would have this wind up. In right. which everyone got married and, and made their fortunes and so on. And Henry James was one of the the leading figures that changed this kind of ending. He, he scoffed at that wind-up ending and he called it, I've got a quote here from him, he called it, quote, "...a distribution at the last of prizes, pensions, husbands, wives, babies, millions, appended mm-hmm. paragraphs, and cheerful remarks." <laughs> end quote and he instead thought the ending should be more open and he kind of pioneered this he stopped the novel in the middle of a conversation for example uh the last line of the ambassadors is then there we are said strether and it's it's like a uh there's an impact to the line the line resonates but it's also ambiguous we know that there might be future problems lying dormant But in some ways, if an author has set things up correctly, it's more satisfying than to say, you know, for example, um, Strether opened the envelope and pulled out the check for the, that would finally make his fortune or, you know, something that strikes us now as a little bit too, uh, too obvious or, or too unsubtle.
4: That reminds me of David Foster Wallace's first novel, The Broom of the System, which ends mid-sentence.
3: Like Finnegan's Wake.
4: Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah.
3: yeah. Well, Finnegans Wake ends mid-sentence. Spoiler alert: Finnegans Wake ends mid-sentence, and the sentence then continues into the back into the first sentence. Hmm. So, like it, the the first words of Finnegans Wake are "river run," uh-huh. and the ending of Finnegans Wake is all along the and then right. you go back to Riverrun. So somewhere out there, there's probably somebody who's gotten stuck on this loop and has just been reading Finnegan's Wake uh, <laughs> ever since its publication and, and can't seem to to jump the tracks.
4: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I really hate that sort of tying up loose ends ending. And it, it's funny because I'd forgotten the ending of The Corrections by Jonathan Franzen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Franzen is a big um, proponent of a return to realism, contemporary novels returning to realism, and in the the end of the corrections is this paragraph that's like straight out of the 19th or 20th century, where he goes through each of the family members and says what they, how their lives ended up.
3: Right, kind of like a movie when they yeah. they flash the character on the screen and then you see, you know, so and so was put in prison or.
4: Yeah, and I was thinking maybe today that even feels fresh because so few novels do that.
3: Right. So the other thing that we used to see in short stories that we don't see anymore is the kind of old Henry ending or a big ironic twist or a big reversal at the end or or some kind of big revelation. I think you still see that in novels sometimes. There's there's a kind of ending like, Hi the narrator I'm really a character in the story or Mm Uh, you know, then he awoke from a dream and that kind of thing. It really feels like cheating. Uh, but I think sometimes maybe novelists paint themselves into a corner and then they think, well, this will give it a final, give the reader a final shiver down the spine that I'm going to pull the rug out from under them.
4: You know, I, I had to look up so many endings for this Mm -hmm. uh, in preparation for this. I, (laughs) I I just could not remember any endings. Um, (laughs) And the endings I did remember, you know, were mostly short stories. Mm-hmm. You know, the ending of Cathedral by mm-hmm. uh, Carver or the ending of The Bear Came Over the Mountain mm. by uh, Alice Monroe. Mhm. Um
3: or uh, Bartleby. Do you remember the ending of that?
4: Right. Uh right.
3: Bartleby, uh, humanity.
4: And and I was thinking, you know, the 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 weight the importance of the ending probably has um an inverse a relation to the length of the work, like I read the ending of War and Peace just because mm-hmm. I was like, "How the hell would you end War and Peace?" So let yeah. me look it up. Well, doesn't and...
3: it end with like a a long oh. essay on history?
4: Oh my god! So <laughs> it's so awful. It's. I was thinking. I was going to try to make the. I was going to make the argument today that it's the worst ending ever. That <laughs> maybe War and Peace is the greatest novel ever. You know, yeah. interestingly, uh, Tolstoy didn't consider War and Peace a novel. Hmm. I was reading some self-criticism and they right. considered Anna Karenina his first novel.
2: Hmm. Right.
4: Uh, so, but that that ending of War and Peace is just unreadable.
3: <laughs> well, the real ending just comes 50 pages before that or something, right? right? right. Yeah. Right. Um and and there there is a difference between the end of the story and then the literal last line. Yeah. Sometimes they coincide. I mean, there's one, The Paper Men is a book. I don't know if you've heard of it, but no. the, the last line is interrupted by a bullet. Hmm. And it's, um the last line is, how the devil did Rick L. Tucker manage to get a hold of a guh? <laughs> <laughs> That's it. All right. The story, you know, the the two endings, the ending of the what happens to the character and the ending of the actual prose is yeah. completely
4: in sync. Yeah, they, you're right. They, they, There's a difference between like the denouement and the actual last page. Mm-hmm. The endings really go to the question of how long should a work be? and Right. It's somewhat... a choice.
3: It's a choice to... Yeah. I mean, Graham Greene says that at the beginning of The End of the Affair. It's it's a choice where a story has no beginning and no end. It's, a, it's my choice as the author or the narrator to choose when to begin the story and to choose when to end the story.
4: Some of my favorite novels just really don't have any ending. Mm. <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say.
3: <laughs> they don't have one or you don't remember them?
4: They they don't well they 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 have a what I consider a false ending. Mm. It's it's almost just that random. Um, right. I mean, Magic Mountain could have ended at any number of places. <laughs> Instead, Hans Kastorp leaves the sanitarium at the end, almost on a whim, and he ends up in the German trenches in World mm. War One. Just it's like what? <laughs>
3: Well, here's an example uh, of a story that has uh, three amazing endings. All three of them are excellent. And it's uh, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. Uh, So the funny thing about this, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Hearts of Darkness about Francis Ford Coppola's attempts to uh, make Heart of Darkness into the film Apocalypse Now.
4: I did years ago. Yeah,
3: it's one of my favorite movies. And one of the things that I loved about it, it started out basically talking about all the people like Orson Welles and all the people throughout history who had tried to make Heart of Darkness into a movie. And it it had been viewed almost as this cursed uh, endeavor because of all the people who had tried and failed to do it. So Francis Ford Coppola takes it on and he has the brilliant idea of setting it in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. During the Vietnam War, and it's it's really an amazing movie. If people haven't seen it, they really should should check it out. It's it's an astonishing piece of filmmaking, very ambitious. But in this movie, Hearts of Darkness, which people should also check out, you see Coppola wandering around saying, "How am I going to end this? How I have no ending, you know?" And he's he's lamenting all of these things like trying to get helicopters for one scene and, and all of the different disasters that are happening. The main character keeps getting hurt. And and he has all of these problems with the production of the movie. But one of his big problems is that he can't figure out how to end it. And they show him at the typewriter and he's, he's you know, tearing pages out of the typewriter, ripping them up because he can't figure out the ending. And he's And the thing that always killed me about that was, the ending is right there. Like Heart of Darkness has this amazing ending and it's the one he ended up using, which is Kurtz saying, you know, the horror, the horror. It's these sort of whispered last words, but that's actually not the ending of Heart of Darkness. That's the ending of Kurtz's story in Heart of Darkness. But then it goes on and it goes back to London and the narrator, the guy who's been telling the story on the boat, Uh, Marlowe. He goes Mm. back to London. I don't know if you remember this part, but he goes back to London and he meets with Kurtz's Intended, uh, is what they call her. I guess it's like a fiancé sort of. And he says to her, uh, the last words he said were and he kind of pauses and then he says, your name. And it's this frame around the story of what's happened in Africa. And the frame is basically Making this point that the narrator cannot bear to impose the evil and the atrocity onto the nice, civilized society of London. That he can't break the spell that everyone in London is living in, which is that everything is just fine and that, you know, there's, there's no evil in the world and all of that. He, he can't deliver Kurtz's actual last lines to the be intended because of what it would mean. Mm -hmm. And then there's also a third ending, which is beautiful and just is very poetic. Uh, Let me read it here. And this is the ending for the people on the ship who've been listening to the story. And it ends. So now the storytelling is over and it ends. The offing was barred by a black bank of clouds and the tranquil waterway leading to the uttermost ends of the earth flowed somber under an overcast sky. Seem to lead into the heart of an immense darkness, mm. and so the, you really get three endings. They're all good. They're all doing something different.
4: Yeah. Normally, I don't like kind of metaphorical endings and kind of send-offs, but mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, I, I reread Heart of Darkness last night. I I felt the same way that it was. It was a great ending.
3: It is so good. The second book that really uh, helped me understand endings and how they work is by Charles Baxter. Uh It's a a book called Burning Down the House. And he has this wonderful essay in it called Against Epiphanies, which is really uh, it's an essay, I think, about Baxter's love for stories and storytelling. and, And I would say it's kind of his hope for them, but it's also his exhaustion. And Baxter was a professor of creative writing for, he has been for years and years, which gives him kind of that perspective of people who have read a ton of bad fiction. You know, mm-hmm. the uh, luxury that those of us who don't teach creative writing have is we can pick and choose and we can only read things that, that where the cream has risen to the top. But if you're a professor of creative writing, you end up reading hundreds and thousands of stories that are all doing the same kind of thing or that are all not pulling it off very well what they're trying to do and what baxter is talking about in against epiphanies he's referring to the famous Joycean epiphany that Mm. uh joyce had had come up with in the dubliners and and joyce epiphany comes from the ancient greek it refers to the experience of a sudden and striking revelation and it was for a long time just used for religion and that was the uh, that was the term that joyce had borrowed from catholicism but he applied it in a secular way to fiction and he he wanted to collect epiphanies and he wanted to have a book that was you know full of these heightened moments of life where suddenly the character would realize something but it wouldn't just be Uh, I think it's gotten used in a clumsy way where the character literally realizes something. And so rather than have an ending like you might have had before Joyce, where people would, you know, bodies would be on the ground and, you know, people would get married or whatever the resolution to the story was, Joyce would have it end in a more, a moment of revelation um, for one of the characters. But it, it got... Overused and it got so clumsy that then it would literally be the author announcing to you you know mm-hmm. th- it would end with the character looking out the window and the author announcing to you what it was they had just realized, yeah, and when you have it in that way, you know Joyce was always he would combine the prose and the the musicality of it and it would bring everything to a resolution. But if you just have it where you're you're literally bombarding the reader with something obvious like. Um, that was when he realized that everyone he believed he could trust could no longer be trusted, you know, or something like that. And it just becomes this kind of truism and, and not a very interesting thing when stated directly. But if it's if it's given the kind of artistic rendition that Joyce did in the end of The Dead, for example, or Araby, it conveys its meaning in a way that's satisfying to the reader without being... A uh, feeling like the reader's been hit over the head.
4: Here's a here's a writing lesson. You know, I I had a I had a writing teacher who told me that he hated the 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 start of a sentence. I su- he he suddenly realized. Yeah, right. And he he said, you know, I know people suddenly realize stuff, but there's something about reading it in a story that's you know very annoying. So he what he recommended is that you write that sentence. You continue with the characters mm-hmm. behaving. As, in whatever way, because they realize realized that, and then go back and delete that sentence.
3: Delete that sentence and maybe figure out if you can convey it through uh, something else rather than the, yeah. that clumsy sentence.
4: And it, it reminds you, you know, I'm not the biggest um, Beckett, uh, a fan of Beckett's novels, mm-hmm. but when you read Beckett's novels, there is a relentlessness of his prose that is, the the emotion that comes out is so earned because he never, ever resorts to saying the word like he felt. Mm-hmm. I mean, the feeling has, you know, it's like squeezing blood out of a stone with Beckett. Mm-hmm. And so it, it feels amazing. Yeah. Uh, rather than you get these like, oh, and she felt, you know, uh, uh, unmoved or she felt moved. And, you know, you get these, you know, the, the 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 writer does the work for the reader.
2: I
3: found a list online of the 100 best last lines from novels. <laughs> and uh, number one was Samuel Beckett from The Unnameable, wow. which is that famous last line of uh, you must go on, I can't go on, I'll go on.
4: Right, right. Uh,
3: which I think is, you know, he owed a huge debt to uh joyce but that that reminds yeah. me the way he does the rhythms of that and and the repetition it reminds me of the way ulysses ends with the you know yes i said yes i will yes right beckett is also in here he landed another one very high up um
4: i hated reading his novels but i read three <laughs> of his novels in a row because um everyone loves his novels well there's there's
3: there's three that came out in it. was it the Malloy trilogy or something. Right. There was three that were all together. <laughs> um, so you could you could trick yourself into thinking you were just reading one.
4: He has a bunch of novels. Watt, um, yeah, right. Malloy, I mean, and M- <laughs> Malone. I, 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 I've, I've met so many writers who've read them and yeah. loved them. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it really was hard, hard work reading reading that. Um, mm-hmm. I almost sometimes I didn't feel human when I was reading his book.
3: <laughs> Do you think that was his intended effect? I, I,
4: I, I can't, I hate to say stuff like this, but I think he was a genius and yeah. he kind of didn't, I think he, he really just wrote whatever he wanted to write. Mm, Cause right. there's, there's a, there's actually a lot of scatological stuff in there too.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Joyce was like that too. I, I get the feeling with Beckett that, um, it wasn't so much that he wanted you to think that uh, you were not human while you were reading it, but that he just was indifferent, that he d- <laughs> he didn't care if that's how you felt. He knew what he was doing and what he wanted to get done, and and the effect on the
4: reader was, uh, you know, yeah.
3: that was a, a collateral damage.
4: Well, you know, he he's a guy who really did not care about readability, right? And I think. That the contemporary concern with readability—that is—it really is a contemporary issue. I mean, you know, prior to probably uh, 1922 or maybe 1945, the writers really didn't care whether they were readable or not, Mm -hmm. Um, and it was just kind of understood that it was worth reading, worth finishing the book to the end. I wonder if there's some way that you could gauge whether people give up on novels more today than they did at the turn of the century.
3: You know, you probably, I wonder if Amazon is able to collect that information (laughs) because, you know, with a Kindle, um, it'll tell you you're 47% of the way through or something. And you do wonder if, um, just like where... Websites. I remember when Garrison Keillor started writing for Salon.com. He said the the biggest thing for him was that Salon would tell him, like, people have spent an average of eight seconds on your on your piece before they click to something else, <laughs> <laughs> and he was just shocked, you know, or like, like only five percent of the people scrolled down to the end.
4: <laughs> I mean, I can count on my hand the number of books I've given up on. I mean, recently I gave up on Dostoevsky's The Idiot. <laughs> and i felt such guilt
3: yeah well you know i i don't think you need to feel guilt about that and and i also went through a stretch where i was only reading first chapters of novels um <laughs> or of books uh, or just introductions and and it was it was profitable for a while. I mean, it, I think it was Oscar Wilde who had said, you know, something like only a fool reads a book to the end or something like that. And, and <laughs> that it's it's OK once you figure out where something is going and you feel like you've gotten the gist of it. Life is short.
4: Did did the list of endings have uh, Catch in the Rye?
3: Um, it might. I don't have all 100 committed to memory. It probably does.
4: I, how, did, would... how does that end? I always like that ending. It's um, don't ever tell anybody anything. If you do, you start missing everybody.
3: Yeah, right. Well, it doesn't seem to be in the top 50. Uh. Uh, <laughs> so, um, But there's a lot of good endings when you look at the list. I mean, it's it's hard to crack the top 50. These authors know yeah. what they're doing. You know, it's interesting, uh, just getting back to Epiphanies for a moment, and one of the points Baxter makes is not just that people are clumsy at pulling off the epiphany, but he thinks that there might be um there might be something political about the fact that these stories are all ending with epiphany and he 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 suggests that maybe because we're all kind of middle class managers that that's sort of the the, mm-hmm. the general reader these days and they're people who value information and so right. a realization or a piece of information is more important to us uh, because that's what we are paid to seek out and, and and get and that's kind of our currency in a way that like uh-huh. um, you know beheading a king or something would not be.
4: I, I know what Baxter's talking about and I get that reaction from um, people when they tell me, oh, I read this novel, but the ending was, it ended this way. And I was like, why did I even read this? <laughs> right. And right. I, I'm always like, really? The ending made you doubt whether you, why you had read the whole thing? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Did the ending mean that much to people? And I guess it, it does. Yeah. I mean, it, I think I, it does the, too. Yeah. The ending to me is like 10%. I
3: mean, unless they, yeah. it really feels like they were cheating or that it was all a big trick
4: or something. Like Atonement by Ian McEwen.
3: Oh, is that the one that says um, "Here's uh, there's a, a narrator that's like a girl or something and then it switches? Yeah,
4: yeah the narrator um, lied right. about the whole story that right. was told. Yeah. And that the, the couple that she watched from afar that fell in love actually both died. Yeah. There was no love. And I've met people who said that ruined it for me. Yeah. And I was like, but this whole thing was made up. (laughs) Right. It's a novel. right? And you can,
3: you can, you can think back to the, you know, three and a half hours that you spent before you got to that ending and enjoy that yeah. for what it was, without having all of that spoiled by the final yeah. thirty seconds or whatever it took to read the ending. Yeah.
4: But that that said, I I I understand a good ending. I mean, I was you know not to bring in film, but I was watching Casablanca mm-hmm. uh, a couple of days ago for the first time with my eleven-year-old daughter, and um, uh, you know that ending is great.
2: Mm. I mean yeah.
4: that that captures. I, it made me realize what I look for in the ending of novels, which is I'm I'm looking for this perfect form of sadness.
2: Mm,
3: right. Well, I've got one for you too in that case because my favorite ending is the end of the third man where do, do you remember that movie and how it ended with the woman? It's this long shot of this woman walking toward Joseph Cotton Mm -hmm. And it's basically this woman that he has totally let down. She was in love with Orson Welles' character, Harry Lyme. And and he basically, I'm really spoiling this, but he basically has shot Orson Welles, um, his friend, because he learned that Orson Welles was a monster. And he had kind of fallen in love with Orson Welles' girlfriend. And he feels, I think, like he's hoping for some kind of redemption from her some sort of forgiveness or some sort of i know you did what you had to do and and what you did was the right thing to do and that's what you're waiting for from her that's what the character is waiting for from her and instead you see the guy standing on the side and you see her walking toward you on this street and she starts out very small and she walks and walks and walks and she gets to the point where she's you know, and it's just the two of them on this on this long, empty, uh, like, gravel path in a park. Wow. And she walks until she finally gets to where he is, and you're waiting for her to turn to him or, you know, to say something. And instead, she just keeps walking past him, and she walks, like, all the way up to the camera and then disappears off the camera. And then you see him like light his cigarette and throw the match under the ground, and it's like the whole thing takes like a minute and a half uh but it's just this beautiful ending that feels very brave and very artistic, but it also feels perfect for where the characters are and and the emotion of it is just overwhelming,
4: yeah no I mean yeah that that's that that I think the 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 sadness and that that reminds me of it's the incompleteness the incompleteness of that you feel because of the ending and you you can't explain it away that makes the ending you know resonate right and maybe that goes to the point of you know the epiphany is an explanation someone's kind of explaining a lesson to you rather than you. Uh, feeling the freedom to interpret.
3: Right, that had a point.
4: Yeah. And I haven't read enough contemporary short fiction, but I, I'm curious how, you know, like someone like T. Kergassian Boyle, the setup is so good. Mm-hmm. I feel like the ending doesn't, you know, doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and, and-, and that that's one way to do it.
3: And that's, you know, we're conditioned to that, I think. I mean, Flannery O'Connor had said that she had an aunt who didn't think that a story had ended until the characters were married or shot dead. <laughs> and that's a different kind of reader. I mean, we're, that's not what we look for when we read stories. I mean, maybe it should be, or it would be a different Maybe we'd be in a different era or something if we did, or or more interested in genre fiction or something. But for those of us who read a lot of literary fiction, like you said, it's almost like you look more for the point or the 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 resonance or the ambiguity or the uh, just the the moment. You look for an artistic ending.
4: Yeah, I I that said I went through a a little P.D. P. Woodhouse phase a couple of years ago. Yeah, PG. And- a yeah, PG would have, yeah, yeah, and uh, every ending is just just the perfect set setup for the next story. Uh. <laughs> I just feel like you get that little. He he does this thing where right. I, I'm sure you've read his stuff. Like you know, there's a little twist in the plot, and then no harm, no foul. Everyone gets together, the rich and the poor, and they kind of like compare notes. And there's a little detail about a character, and then the next story runs with it. Mm, right. And it, it's so they're very, sort of
3: interlocking.
4: Yeah, it's very satisfying.
3: Does it make yeah. you? Is it like a cliffhanger where it makes you want to read the next, like immediately turn the page to the next one?
4: <laughs> well, you, I think what you feel like this intellectual exercise, not mm-hmm. to, not to make PG Woodhouse seem like highbrow, but. Um, <laughs> Because you wonder, okay, he he had a little twist with the wedding ring. Mm-hmm. And the next story is about, you know, uh, a bracelet. And you, you wonder, like, how is he going to pull it off? <laughs> how is he going to make it different? And then he does. Right. The next story is about a pair of, like, shoes. And yeah. you're like, how is he going to do it again? And then he does it. And so, <laughs> yeah, you know, there's something very, I mean, I bring this up as an example of, extremely satisfying endings.
3: I can remember once when I was a kid and, and back then there was nothing on television during the day and, and I was in grade school and my sister, you know, after the game shows were over in the morning on summer vacation, there was nothing to watch. And my sister would continue the television watching with soap operas. And so one day I was watching one with her and the camera zoomed in on a coffee pot at the end of a scene Mm -hmm. And my sister said, now they'll show a coffee pot in another location. And that's what they did. They like dissolved (laughs) to another coffee pot and then they zoomed out and we were, you know, we had gone into a different room of the hospital or something. And I was so (laughs) impressed that she had, you know, informed me of that. And instead it was just, she, you know, it was a pretty obvious uh, way of changing scenes that this uh, director did over and over and over and it's so often that that she knew exactly what would happen and and when you think about it why would you zoom in on a coffee pot and and blur it out unless you were going to do something like that but i was still amazed by it Uh um, sounds like uh uh pg was maybe a forerunner of that kind of a technique
4: yeah but that shows you that shows us that Cheap devices yeah. can be very uh, <laughs> enthralling.
3: Right. Well, there's that ending of, uh, I don't know if you ever read the Uncle Wiggly stories for children. Uh oh, um, yeah. And yeah. There, there's an ending in those that my boys just loved. And I remembered when my mom used to read me those stories, I had the same reaction. It would say something at the end like, and that's the story of, you know, the rabbit with the toothache. And if the pancake doesn't jump out of the pan and run down the street screaming, you know, (laughs) where's my breakfast, you know, then I'll tell you that the the next time I'll tell you the story of, you know, the boy with the broken arm or something like that. And every time it has this little clever little thing at the end and my boys would just love it. And then they would immediately want to hear like, oh, just read one more, just read one more, you know, but it never ends because they all have that little, you know, twist at the end.
4: You know, it's so hard. Speaking of endings, it's so hard to write a good ending. In in my own stories that I've been working on in my novel, I just kill everybody at the end. (laughs) I I do the Shakespeare thing. It seems right. like so many people die at the end. <laughs> like, you know the play is ending because people are dying.
3: That's good. You're writing for Flannery O'Connor's aunt. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. know, it's it's a different kind of ending. I mean, Flannery O'Connor has a great short story that ends with, I mean, A Good Man is Hard to Find. Is It's oh, yeah. shocking when you read it. But I think it's because it, it goes against that kind of epiphany that we're talking about. And I think it's very effective to end things kind of old school, the way a Greek tragedy or the way Shakespeare might've ended.
4: Yeah. And that and to see, um, did, does the, the misfit shoot the grandmother or it ends before the shot? I don't remember, it, but it's such a great scene because the grandmother is, is basically ready. The, the misfit has killed the rest of the family. Yeah. Right.
3: Well, the, the misfit kills the grandmother too. And then here's, oh, okay, here's how it ends. She was a talker wasn't she Bobby Lee <laughs> Bobby Lee said sliding down the ditch with a yodel oh She God. she would have been a good woman the misfit said if it had been somebody there to shoot her every minute of her life Wow some fun, <laughs> it's not the end yet some fun Bobby Lee said shut up Bobby Lee the misfit said it's no real pleasure in life
4: Wow such
1: a good ending
4: Jeez that's um, amazing it's such
3: a good story, so why don't we yeah. uh why don't we get to i don't know if you wanna uh throw out some endings and I'll try to guess what they are or we'll just trade off here and I've got a bunch too yeah. that I really admire
4: yes sure so here here i thought I'll start with an easy one okay well, now we will finish talking and go to the, his funeral dinner. Don't be disturbed at our eating pancakes. It's a very old custom, and there's something nice in that, laughed Alyosha. Well, let us go, and now we go hand in hand, and always so, all our lives hand in hand. Hooray for Karamazov. <laughs> Koala cried once more, and once more the boys took up his cry. Hooray for Karamazov. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I was, I was really pleased that uh, the way the brothers Karamazov ended Yeah, was was um, uplifting, and despite everything that had happened, and Mm. they 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 had they were you know celebrating the name,
3: right, right, okay, here's one for you, to us and snails, God bless them.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Is is that um, is that like Moliere? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. I'm gonna go with the french because the snails uh iris murdoch
3: ah uh, the book in the brotherhood <laughs> one of the funniest endings uh I've never read that novel I don't think uh, or maybe i did i I don't remember I did go through a little bit of an iris Murdoch phase, but um I don't remember that book, although that's one of the few endings that is really good even even out of context.
4: <laughs> All right, here's here's one. I I think you'll probably get this since I've been I've mentioned it on previous podcasts, but I I think the ending is so good. They said, "Please, please make love with Helen. We require an assertion of value. We are frightened." I said they shouldn't be frightened, although I am often frightened, and that there was value everywhere. Helen came and embraced me. I kissed her a few times on the brow. We held each other. The children were excited. There was a knock on the door. I opened the door and a new gerbil walked in. The children cheered wildly. Bartholomew. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's cool. That's the end. I was like, there's a knock on the door and the gerbil walked in.
3: <laughs> okay, here's one for you. He was soon borne away by the waves and lost in darkness and distance.
4: Huh. Is that Patrick O'Brien? No. Who is that?
3: Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. Oh, God. That's haunting, isn't it? Yeah. Oh. The monster. You have any more?
4: I've got one line for you. Okay. I don't even remember what happened before prior to the line, but I I do remember the the, the novel ending this way. Yes, I said, isn't it pretty to think so? Yes, that was going to be
3: my next one for you because you haven't <laughs> guessed any, so I was <laughs> going to give you the softball. Uh, the sun also rises. What happens uh,
4: before that line? I don't. I mean, I I know it's. You know, um.
3: Doesn't he, uh, Isn't it? Uh, Lady Brett is saying to Jake, we could have had a good life together or we could have, you Uh, and I could have been a good couple or something. And then he says, yes, isn't it pretty to think so?
4: Yeah. Okay.
3: (laughs) Here's one. You'll probably get this. This one is just genius. I love this one. But I reckon I got to light out for the territory ahead of the rest because Aunt Sally, she's going to adopt me and civilize me and I can't stand it. I've been there before.
4: Huh. Is it Dickens?
3: Uh close. Huck Finn.
4: Ah. Uh-huh. <laughs>
3: and civilized is spelled with an S instead of a C. Here's another one that I liked. Um, you know, Gatsby's ending is famous, but I don't really like it that much. So we beat on Boats Against the Current, born back ceaselessly into the past. A lot of people cite that as their favorite ending to a story. I I think it's a little um a little heavy handed to me, and I don't think it's I don't know. Not my favorite.
4: Yeah. Yeah. That, was, that's, that's Gatsby. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I was surprised by how moved I was by this one. Charlotte's web. Huh? Uh, you oh, remember the I'm, yeah, story yeah. of Charlotte's web? So she's the, I remember the ending, the spider who writes the, writes the words I, in the
4: web. That's a very sophisticated ending for children's book. I remember, I, I think I might've cried. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, Man. it's,
3: It's devastating, but it's beautiful. And um, it's E.B. White, of course, who's kind of an amazing uh, writer, sneaking up on you with emotion. And and the final line of that is, it is not often that someone comes along who is a true friend and a good writer. Charlotte was both.
4: Wow.
3: Devastating. I mean, really, it's a spider. (laughs) right people step on them every day and yet there it is i'm getting a little misty just thinking about it okay any other uh do you have any other good ones
4: i i i have one that i think it will be quite difficult for you to guess but um I, i always thought it was it was a great ending Uh, She stared at him for a moment as if waves of wind had come beating into her face, into her face, into her head, pulling everything to rags. Names elude me, she said harshly. Then the look passed away as she retrieved with an effort some bantering grace. She set the book down carefully and stood up, lifted her arms to put them around him. Her skin or breath gave off a faint new smell, a smell that seemed to him like that of the stems of cut flowers left too long in the water, I'm happy to see you, she said, and pulled his earlobes. You could have just driven away, she said, just driven away without a care in the world and foreshook me, foreshooken me, forsaken. He kept his face against her white hair, her pink scalp, her sweetly shaped skull. He said, not a chance. Hmm. So. I don't know. It's The Bear Came Over the Mountain by Alice Oh,
1: right, right.
4: Yeah. And, uh, you know, big spoiler alert. People really should not listen if they haven't read this yet. (laughs) But um, it's it's an aging couple. One gets put into the home. And when she's at the home, she falls in love with this other guy at the home. And she's losing her memory. It's
3: devastating.
4: And the guy at the home is only there temporarily. So leaves and goes back to his wife. And so the narrator contacts the other couple, the wife, and says, "Can you, can your husband meet my wife at the home?" <laughs> oh, I
3: know. It is, it is a heart wrenching story. It's so surprising, like that oh. that Alice Munro even came up with that premise, oh. and yet it is just yeah.
4: And it has the best use of an answering machine ever. <laughs>
3: And maybe maybe that'll be the end of it because you don't see answering machines around as much anymore.
4: Well, you know, I was re- watching Ghost World the other night and the use of answering machines in that film is <laughs> it was 2001. So in 15 years, no more answering machines, no more, you know, leaving messages, people screening their messages. Right. And if you were the type of person they want to talk to, they would pick up mid-message the old mid message. Oh, I'm still here, you know? right? <laughs> so, and then um, Steve Buscemi's character has a great line in it. Um, the the he's depressed and the phone's ringing, and his friend goes, "Why don't you pick up?" And he says, "I don't want to talk to anyone who would want to speak to me." <laughs>
3: <laughs> so, uh, let me uh, let's give a couple more here. I I wanted to tell the story about my uh the the time the one time that i peeked ahead to the ending and i I really don't know why i did this but it was the worst possible book that you could do it with i think without question and i'm gonna (laughs) spoil it for everybody so if you've listened this far but you really don't want the worst possible spoiler feel free to skip ahead a minute or two in this podcast But it was, I was in high school and I was assigned the book, uh, 1984 for a book report. And I, I don't know what possessed me to skip ahead. I've, I had never done that before. i had never looked at the last line and I, I kind of feel like it was maybe because my sister did it and I wanted to, to see what it was like or, or see if that would be helpful or, or I was just imitating her without thinking about it or something. But The last line of that book, the last four words are, he loved Big Brother. (laughs) And I read that and I just thought, oh, I know what this whole book is going to be about. The whole book is going to be about whether or not he's going to accept Big Brother. And I know exactly what's going to wind up happening. And the whole rest of the book, all the suspense and all of his struggle against this, um, You know, the totalitarian regime, none of it had any suspense for me. It was just awful.
1: Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks, as always, to Mike El Presidente of the Club for Supporters of Literature. Let's end things quickly, shall we? I can do that, too. Remember to send us an email or leave us a message. Subscribe to the podcast so you can get every episode. Rank us and rate us and tell all your friends. Visit us on Facebook or online at historyofliterature.com. And now, let's lift a glass. Maybe you have a glass of wine or champagne. I personally have coffee because it's four in the morning where I am, but I'm raising my Iceland mug. Are you ready? To all of us, and to snails, God bless them. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time.